Uh, there was an old school friend who uh, phoned me in 2013. His name was Ron. Um, and it was actually really unusual to hear from him because I've not spoken to him since, well, school, really, about eight years ago. He'd seen that I'd become a, fa um, a Christian on Facebook and was seeing something of my life turn around. And so he called me and he wanted to just express the turmoil and the mess that his own life was in. Drugs, lost jobs, bad health, broken relationships. And that night we spent almost two hours on the phone. He was in a mess. And over the next few months, I prayed with him, shared the scriptures with him, um, warned him about the dangers of sin. I actually put him in touch with a, with a Christian in his town who took him to church and he began to read the Bible. He even got back in touch with his family who he'd been estranged from for a while and they were a bit skeptical but glad that he was going to church. But then there was silence until a few months later um, I received another phone call from him again clearly high on drugs, just broken up with his girlfriend, and he was in a real mess. He was full of regret, of regret at the state of his life, of regret at the implications of his actions upon his friends, upon his family, even me. He was regretful that he'd let me down. He experienced true and real sorrow, but this sorrow never seemed to materialize in repentance or in turning to God. Then there was James. Uh, James lived a similar life to Ron, actually. Uh, lost friends and jobs, uh, heavily into drugs. His life was a mess, and he knew it. It was headed in an awful direction. And yet he was presented with his sin, with the gospel, and he understood that the sorrows in his life were um, a result and a consequence of his sin and the actions that he had made. But he recognized ultimately that it was an issue that he had with God and by God's grace, having heard the call of the gospel and being confronted with God's word, James gave up the drugs, gave up the women. He made true and lasting mends with his family and with his friends. The sorrow over his sin led him to genuine repentance. Now, these two stories, they're true, uh, and they illustrate two very different responses over sorrow for sin, and our passage focuses on some of these themes. And so, just before we get into that passage, uh, we'll just uh, just deal with a bit of uh, context. We're entering. If you've just joined us uh, for our series in Second Corinthians, I want to say welcome to you. We're actually just entering a, a new section in the letter in the book. And so, Paul's actually the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter. He's picking up from chapter two, where he was recalling his travel plans. Uh, from Troas to Macedonia, and he was reporting his anguish over the loss of his brother Titus. And so if you look at chapter 2, verse 12, and you put it against chapter uh, uh, 7, verse 4, you'll see that there's some similar themes. It's almost like when you get to chapter 2, verse 13, we've had like a, a sudden set of diversion roadworks, and then we've gone into this huge piece from uh, chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul is basically defending or defining and defending the glory of new covenant ministry. And we get to chapter 7 and we veer back onto the main road and Paul picks up his travel plans to Macedonia, the loss of his brother Titus and this severe letter that he was talking about. If you've read anything about the, the letter to the Corinthians, whether the first letter or this one, uh, you'll know a few things about this church. From its inception to this current letter, 
uh, this congregation has been fraught with, well, factionalism. My pastor's better than your pastor. Disunity. Well, this gift far surpasses your gift. There's sexual immorality that would apparently make the pagans wince. And there's a, a worldliness, a general blending in with the world and a cloaking of the, the uniqueness that this church was meant to be. And yet, amidst all this mess, this church is loved and chosen by God, and therefore loved by the Apostle Paul. And in some ways, actually, these sins are present in every church after Corinth to some degree or another. And until the new creation, every church will still have blemishes. And so our passage this evening helps us as a congregation grasp what God would have us do as his church when sin inevitably rears its ugly head. And so let's dig into this passage. Would you look with me at verse 4 under the heading, Comfort and Joy in Trouble. Look with me at verse 4. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you, the Apostle Paul says. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Troubles, or depending on your translation, afflictions, they're a huge theme throughout 2 Corinthians. If you remember earlier in his letter, he talked about his trip to Asia and he said, we were under great pressure, far more than we could bear, so that we despaired of life itself. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says he remembered that he'd felt like he'd been given the sentence of death. And it seems that the situation, once escaping from Asia, hadn't actually got much better once he arrived in Macedonia. Both his journey and the arrival into Macedonia was full of affliction. Look at verse 5. He says that we had no rest, but we were harassed at every single turn. So there's drama on the ground in Macedonia. We don't know exactly what was going on during this visit, but if you remember Paul's first visit, my word. Um, if you don't know about that, later on after the service, go to Acts 16 and read about it. But in summary, basically Paul was thrown into prison in Philippi, beaten. As he moved to Thessalonica, he was basically hounded by a vicious and angry mob out of the city. So he then went to Berea, 72 kilometers away. But when this angry mob heard that he hadn't quite left the region, they chased him for 70 kilometers in order to push him out of Berea. Not a warm welcome at all. So there was trouble on the ground, and it seems like the situation hadn't improved as he arrives in Macedonia again. He says that there were conflicts on the outside, but there were also fears within, as well as the enormity of the pressure of the churches that Paul says that he felt later on in the letter. He's actually been separated from his brother and his partner in the gospel, Titus. He calls him a, a, a true son in our common faith. And it wasn't just that Paul loved this brother, and he was sad that he was separated from him, and he, and he was, but actually Titus was on a vital mission. Titus was actually going to deliver this tearful or this sorrowful or this severe letter to the Corinthian church. And he was going to come and ask for money from the Corinthian church for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. It was a bit like um, a letter from the HMRC coming, telling you off and also asking for money. That's my experience from letters from the HMRC. Anyway, so Titus is separated from him. They, uh, they were meant to meet uh, in Troas to go to Macedonia, but he hasn't turned up, and it's likely that the whole winter has gone past. 
And so he's concerned for him, he's concerned about how the church responded, and he's concerned that maybe Titus has fell into the hands of bandits with the money that came from the church. And so conflicts and fears weighed upon the Apostle Paul's mind. There was fears and conflicts about gospel progress, church dynamics as Titus went to visit the church, false teaching, opposition, money worries, and physical safety. And the list goes on. And so Paul is right when he says we had troubles, we had afflictions. And just as a side note, actually, as I was reading this, I I thought about how I felt challenged particularly about my lack of prayer for the persecuted church. You see, this kind of experience is an everyday reality for so many missionaries, church planters, and evangelists. As the gospel and as gospel proclaimers move into enemy territory, there will inevitably be conflict, whether it's physical opposition or the fear of finances, marginalization. Christian groups and fledgling churches need prayer. And so I was reminded about PrayerMate, this great app that you can get that actually has a uh, world watch list on it for persecuted Christians. If you don't have that on your phone, that's a great thing to get. Uh, What you could also do is maybe contact some of our fledgling churches that are seeking to break into new territory. I know that Adam McNinch from Christchurch Queensferry sends out a monthly prayer update. Maybe that's something that you could include in your regular prayer updates. And Martin Smith as well down there in the borders uh, would value our prayer too. And they could maybe share with them, uh, share with us some of their conflicts without and their fears within. Okay, so the troubles, they were real for the Apostle Paul. They were just as real for him as they are today. And yet time and time again, no matter the affliction, no matter the trouble, no matter the opposition, Paul is encouraged and he finds his comfort and his strength in the only place that he can find comfort and strength. Look at me at verse 6. He finds his comfort and strength in God. He says, but God, amid all the heartache, amid all the disaster, conflicts and fears and opposition, God is there. He's the author and the source of Paul's joy. And this, the tone of the passage uh, changes and actually echoes the great prologue that you'll remember. That God that he prays to, the God of all comfort, that comforts us in all of our troubles. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. He says, but God, verse 6, God who comforts the downcast. You see, for Paul, his only true hope in life and death, his only source of immovable encouragement and comfort comes from the God, the only God who comforts the downcast. Uh, This theme of God comforting his people, it's not exclusive to the New Testament or to 2 Corinthians. It's not simply um, popped up in in our New Testament. Paul's drawing not only from his own experience, but from a rich history from the prophets, particularly Isaiah. You'll remember that opening verse of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Okay, well, how does God bring comfort to his people? Well, according to Isaiah, at least, he does so by having compassion on the afflicted, verse 49, 13. He does so by making their wilderness an Eden. He restores his people, chapter 51, verse 3. He deals with their enemies. He restores them into a right relationship with him. He comforts them by taking away their fear of death through fearing him alone. He redeems them, chapter 54. These are themes of salvation. That's how God comforts his people. And so when Paul recalls the God who comforts the downcast, he's not thinking slippers and a hot water bottle. It's not that kind of comfort. It's a reminder of who God is in 
Christ and all that he's promised to do for his people. So it's got theological depth and it's a well that Paul needed to draw from, as do we. And so the application from this is clear, I think. Paul was bewildered, he was downcast, and he was literally brought as low as you can get. He felt alone in many ways, both physically and psychologically afflicted. And yet, where does he draw his comfort? Brother or sister, I wonder how the experience of the Apostle Paul just mentioned there, or your own experience, compares to that. And I ask you, has God changed in any way? Has his favor towards you amended? Has his loving kindness towards you in Christ diminished? The answer is no, praise the Lord. See, God's ultimate comfort towards us is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what more comfort could God give us? What more strength, what more encouragement could he give us than his own son? Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He's going to come again for you. He graciously sent another comforter to be with you always, to dwell in you. Your great enemies of death and hell and Satan are defeated. Your relationship to God is restored. Amazing. But God, he does even more than that, doesn't he? You're thinking, what? What more could he possibly do? Well, God didn't relate to Paul in some kind of theological vacuum. No, God comforted Paul. He used specific means. He graciously uses his people, the church. And for Paul, it was the end of verse 6, it was through the coming of Titus. And this was for two reasons. Well, firstly, Paul was comforted at Titus' return because his previous anxieties about what happened to him have been alleviated. He can now continue the good work of gospel proclamation with his brother in Christ. But secondly, and I think most importantly, it's the message that Titus brings back. Paul is comforted with the comfort, verse 7, that he received from the Corinthians. And what was that? The news of their repentance. And that's our next heading. God comforts us in repentance. Okay, look with me at verse 8. And Paul says, uh, picks up this idea of this sorrowful letter again. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. We just need to do a little bit of context here. So during um, Paul's second visit to the Corinthian church, He'd faced some kind of opposition from, it seems, an individual involved in some kind of sexual sin. And it seems like the majority of the congregation sided with this individual and not with the Apostle Paul, or at least they didn't defend the Apostle Paul, and so therefore were complicit with who they sided with. And this visit pained Paul. He loved this church. So through his own preaching and teaching, the church had uh, been formed. He spent 18 months with them. And so to hear that this body of believers, this beloved church of his, was veering off into some sin, rejecting his authority as an apostle, it brought him to tears. The first, this visit was painful. And so he decided, and he says this in chapter 2, he decided not to make another visit 
He says it was to spare them. Chapter 1, verse 23 says that. And instead, he sends Titus with this severe letter, sometimes called the letter, the sorrowful letter or the tearful letter. And so Paul sends his brother Titus to the church. And he knows that this letter has caused them sorrow. He says that here in verse 8. And he was tempted to regret it. But brothers and sisters, he rejoices. He rejoices because actually this letter had led them to repentance. That's what makes this passage so beautiful. Paul says, yet I am now happy. Why? Because your sorrow led to repentance. Verse 9. Yet now am I happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So their sorrow at the coming of this, this harsh letter, which is now lost to us, the message of Paul, it worked like a, a cattle prod, this big electric stick that shocks big immovable beasts to move in the right direction, to head in the right way. This letter shocked them. It caused grief. It caused sorrow, but this sorrow was intended to move them into the right direction, repentance. And that's what it did. Their sorrow was outworked in the way God intended it. That's what verse 9 says. You actually became sorrowful as God intended. There are two types of sorrow for sin. Paul talks about this in verse 10. Look with me. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, great examples of uh, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, the example of Peter and Judas in the New Testament, both rejected their Lord, both sinned against him, and yet one, one grief led him to repentance, the other sorrow led him to death. It's a bit like my example of my friend Ron, his sorrow was over some lost thing, um, he wasn't sorrowful that led him to repentance, it led to death. But the second type, the sorrow that brings repentance and leads to salvation, is the exact type displayed in the Corinthian church. How do we know? Well, verse 11 tells us. It's like a 180-degree turn. There's zeal, there's passion, there's emotion, there's conviction. Paul lists these seven animated reactions of the, of the Corinthians. There's earnestness, eagerness to clear themselves. There's indignation, no doubt, at the sin that they uh, committed. There's alarm at the severity of what they'd done against the Apostle Paul. There was longing for Paul, for his ministry to be restored to him. There was readiness to see justice done. It's like each emotional aspect builds an intensity of their genuine repentant response. It's a challenge. Have you ever seen your sin in that way and repented? There's a a very real and direct application to us here as a church family. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And check this out, it leaves no regret. There's no regret, there's no loss in the Christian life where repentance is concerned. Only salvation. We want to remember that repentance and faith, it's not just the way into the Christian life, but it's the pattern that we walk every day. Paul was writing to a body of believers. And yet he still says that they repented and it led them to salvation. Repentance in the Christian life leaves no regret. Firstly, because it reminds us that we're the real deal. 
Repentance in the Christian life, conviction of sin, sorrow over our sinfulness, leads us to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and reminds us that we are God's people. If you've been convicted of your sin lately through reading God's word and you've been led to repentance, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You're his. means we're on the right track. Yes, conviction of sin hurts. It's a stab in our consciences. We feel remorse over some way that we've conducted ourselves or over um, some way that we've joined in with some type of gossip at work or an outburst at the children again or some other sin. And though initially it's painful, it's intended to lead us to a loving God. It's intended to lead us to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how then could it leave any regret? Once we're restored, it brings joy. And so... Brother or sister, whatever thing is in your life that the Lord has been convicting you over, let that lead you to repentance. Whatever unhelpful behavior, whatever unhelpful pastime pleasure, confess it, renounce it, and retell the truth that this has no mastery over you and that you can find forgiveness and restoration through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And you will be restored with no regret, only joy. Repent and press on. And let the joy of the Lord's salvation flood your life again and give you hope and endurance. I mean, this is amazing. The Apostle Paul declares that the Corinthians at the end of verse 11 are innocent in this matter. That's a very particular choice of a word. We know that they sinned. He said so. And yet he declares them innocent. And actually, that's the case for those that repent and trust in Jesus Christ. We're clothed with his innocence, his righteousness. And so when we bring our baggage, our rebellion, our bitterness, our pride, our sharp tongues, gossip, anger, sexual immorality, when we bring it to the foot of the cross, when we grieve over it, when we allow the sorrow over our sin to lead to repentance, we can be declared innocent in Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a real clear application for us here as a church to continue repenting, to be led by the Spirit to repent and to be growing in holiness. But actually, there's a real challenge if you're not a Christian and you're here today. I don't know whether you're tuning in here at home, this is your first time, uh, welcome to you, or you've been brought here as a visitor. But this verse also has a real challenge for you. Do you know it's very easy to be sorrowful over your sin? Sin causes devastation. Whether it's our lying, our cheating, our selfishness, our greed, it has negative outcome. It produces negative fruit. And so whether that's a broken relationship or a lost job or possession or jaded health, and we can mourn those things, but never be truly sorry for the sin itself or the one to whom it's aimed at. But God's intention of speaking to your conscience of challenging you in your sin is to lead you decisively to Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, the scripture says, and yet became sin for us by dying on the cross and rising again. Let your sorrow over sin lead you to not worldly grief, not sorrow over some lost thing, but repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to find out more about that, happy to speak to you over at the end of the service or maybe speak to the Christian that brought you. So genuine repentance had flooded the church of Christ at Corinth. 
And let's just notice, brothers and sisters, how this all came about. How was it that the church of Christ at Corinth were convicted of their sin? Well, Paul was bold to speak, wasn't he? And let's not kid ourselves. You know, sometimes we can think of Paul in a cape as a superman and nothing bothered him, but that's not, that's not the case. Actually, Paul says in this letter, chapter 1, verse 4, that he wrote the letter with great distress and anguish. We know what that's like sometimes when we've got to speak to a brother or sister about some sin. It's not easy, and nor was it for the apostle Paul, and yet Christ's love compelled him. And what I love and feel really challenged by is actually the motivation of Paul to speak in this letter. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says here that the reason that he wrote, he says, here's the motivation for my rebuke. Here's the motivation for my letter. Here's why I caused you grief and pain in what I wrote. He says it wasn't on the account of the wrongdoer, the 80% of the Corinthian church that had sided with the sinner. And it wasn't on the account of the injured party, the Apostle Paul says, that's him. But rather, look at this, that before God, you could see yourselves, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. I like the ESV's rendering of this. It says that that, um, before God, you might see that your earnestness for us is revealed to you. Basically, Paul's motivation is other person centered. You see, he wants them to know that in the sight of God, they are the real deal. That's why Paul wrote the severe letter. That's the true spirit of rebuking someone. It's for restoration. It's other person-centered. So Paul wrote this harsh letter so that they might see, the church at Corinth might see, that they belong to him and that they are earnest for Paul, the true apostle, and for the true gospel. And so his rebuke is other person-centered. It's focused on their restoration. I remember um, a brother taking me aside once and lovingly and gently, but very truthfully, saying, I've noticed that you keep interrupting people. Don't know if you suffer with this. It's almost like you think what you have to say is more important than others. He said, why not pray through and think through what James says, that we're to be quick to listen and slow to speak. This rebuke, it hurt. (laughs) Uh, There was genuine sorrow, but it was temporary. Because actually, firstly, I have faith that this brother's motivation was for my restoration and good. But actually, I believe the Lord's changing that in me slowly. This was an example of somebody lovingly speaking into a brother's life for their good and for the glory of God. And so we speak the word to one another, not just to encourage one another, but to reproof, to rebuke, in order that we might be restored, in order that we might live continuing holy lives. And so it's a real challenge, Paul's motivation there. And actually, we see the fruit of the apostles' boldness in the rest of the passage. And this is second point under a second heading, uh, God comforts in restoration. Let's look at verse 13, 13b says, in addition to our own encouragement or comfort, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. Right, think about this. So Titus knows full well about Paul's recent visit, the one in which the 
the sexual, immoral person uh, stood up against him, challenged him as the apostle, and the rest of the church sided with him. He'll be well aware of the other issues in the church from 1 Corinthians, sexual immorality, the pride, the boasting, the factionalism. Uh, The Corinthians were actually expecting the apostle to arrive, and they get the second in command, Titus. Not only that, Titus is bringing this severe, tearful letter. What kind of a response would you expect from this church? (laughs) How would they receive Titus? How would they take the letter? This wasn't an easy thing to do. You see, the sin of the Corinthians needed rebuking because in rejecting Paul, the Corinthians were rejecting God himself. And yet, Titus is overjoyed because he didn't, they didn't respond as he expected. His response, uh, their response was favorable. God's spirit was clearly at work in both Paul's letter to the Corinthians and in their own hearts. Titus comes back and he's overjoyed. He's like, Paul, these brothers and sisters, what a joy to see them repent and to recommit to you and to the true gospel. And he was like, more than that, more than their repentance, they actually encouraged me. We had fellowship. They refreshed me. We worshiped the Lord Jesus together. It says they refreshed him. They were like like a cool breeze on a sweltering hot day. They were like an ice cold drink to a parched mouth. They brought genuine repentance, uh, genuine refreshment. And I don't just think it was a place to stay in a bacon roll, though they probably would have had that. But there was a sense of spiritual refreshment and nourishment that can only come from spirit-filled believers worshiping the Lord himself. And Paul would have been conscious of what Titus was heading into as well. And so no wonder he was overjoyed. You know, he'd boasted to Titus about this church He'd been telling Titus about the many encouragements of the church, the gifts. But actually, there was no doubt some trepidation in how they would respond. But verse 14, Paul's overjoyed because actually his boasting about this beautiful church, and he can call it beautiful, he can, he can boast about them, has proved true. Because in the pain and the grief of rebuke came repentance, which led to restoration. Not only of Paul and the Corinthians. He was restored to them, but actually Titus as well. You see, true repentance is God-centered, and it also leads to true fellowship with God's people. You see, the, the Corinthians didn't just kind of say to Titus, oh, hi, God bless you, welcome. They welcomed in him. They, uh, they were reconciled to him. They didn't keep him at arm's length. As we heard this morning, they opened their hearts to him. And so the applications from this are quite clear, aren't they? Genuine repentance must lead to restored relationships. Firstly, to God. See, the greatest relationship that's at stake because of our sin is our relationship to the living God. It's the brokenness between God and man. And so our repentance must firstly get right with God. But secondly, repentance should lead to restoration with God's people. Brothers and sisters, cold shoulders... Factions, social ostracism, or exclusive friendship groups have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the world's way of living. That's the world's way of dealing with things. We are to be those who dwell in unity, a shared and common bond of brotherly and sisterly affection. We're to welcome one another, to love one another, to bear with one another. 
to encourage one another. We're to be those who refresh one another. Is your aim in dealing with your brothers and sisters more push away or welcome and refresh? It's a challenge to me. So repentance leads to restoration. It also leads to obedience. Look at verse 13, uh, 15. Sorry. It says, And his affection for you is all the more greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. See, this brought Titus so much joy. So we've already discussed what, uh, what anticipation Titus must have felt as he approached this church. But actually, what he found was a body of believers genuinely struck over their sin and not only wanting to make it right, restoring their relationship with the Apostle Paul and with Titus, but then to continue to pursue obedience as they got alongside the Apostle Paul and along his envoy. You see, Titus came bringing the word of God, word from God, and the Corinthians responded to God's word and to God's servant in the right way, with fear and trembling. And so for us, there's a call to obedience here, brothers and sisters. The Corinthians responded in the right way to God's message and to God's messenger. And so where to respond to the right way to God's message and God's messenger. Now, this isn't an exclusive call to listen and follow to everything that Paul Rees, uh, Andy Patterson, or Liam Garvey say, although that would be a, a wise idea, especially if you work for them. No, I joke. But there's definitely implications for how we receive God's truth. And how this filters down, not just from the pulpit, but to all areas of church life in our small groups. For those of you that still live at home, when your parents bring the commands of God's word to you, how do you respond to that? In fear and trembling? Or do you dismiss it? The Corinthians honored Titus therefore honored the apostle, therefore honored God by obeying and continuing in fear and trembling at God's word. That's the right response to God's word. Let's be men and women. Let's be a church that responds in fear and trembling to the word of God and let it lead us to obedience and joy in him. As I close, God brings comfort and joy. He brings it in the gospel, our reality of being in Christ he brings comfort and joy in the gospel through repentance, restoring us to him, reminding us of our childhood in his family, that we're the real deal. And he brings comfort and joy as he leads us into restored relationships, firstly with God, but then with one another. There's a grief and a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. We need to eschew that. We need to avoid that like the plague. But it's God's intention that our sorrow over our sin our sin in the church, our individual sin, leads us to repentance and brings us to joy and restoration in Christ and with his people. Ron's situation was sad. His sorrow actually did lead him uh, to death. But James is still going on with the Lord, repenting daily, pressing on in faith and in fellowship with God's people. What good news. Let's pray.